Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Good evening, children of the night. Come on in from this July heat. Once again, I will be your host, Stephen Kilpatrick. Mr. Santaro is still taking care of his health, and I'll be taking care of Mahler, think black cat of the nook. I've prepared some snacks and drinks for you, so take a seat, settle in, enjoy this cool of the dark. Tonight's show has a theme for Tony C. Smith's July 19th birthday. For those of you who've managed to find your way to this podcast without being aware of our neighbors, Mr. Smith is the mayor of our District of Wonders, as he is the host of Starship Sofa. I chose a pair of stories that speak of the future. Happy birthday, Tony. Here is Tales to Terrify's birthday present to you. Paul Jessup is the author of our first story for the evening. You may remember him from way back in episode 43, his story, The Secret in the House of Smiles. Or you may know him from his novel, Open Your Eyes, in which savage lives rage and love on a small ship in the outer reaches of space, a ship with an agenda of its own. Or perhaps from Glass Coffin Girls, a collection of short stories, both available from all of the regular places one would find books printed or digital. From his About page, which of course you'll find a link to in the show notes, Paul Jessup is a critically acclaimed award-winning author, poet, and playwright. He has appeared in many different magazines, anthologies, and has a few books placed out in small and large publishing houses alike. You can attempt to email him at paul.jessup at gmail.com. His story for us tonight is titled Post Flesh. 
Give it a listen as a space-faring crew finds a ruined planet scattered with the leavings of an alien civilization. I'll draw your attention to the spider beasts discovered on day one of this expedition. I sure hope the crew brought ham salad sandwiches and a nice Chardonnay. Sounds like it'll be quite a pleasant picnic. 1. Captain Found Us a Ghost World Shedram It was a grave of space, a planet of bones. It was the endless all and everything. Shadrim. When we discovered it, we found it full of ruins and corpses. Shadrim. When it discovered us, it was thinking. Shadrim. It had the grave thoughts. Thoughts that only the dead could or would want to think. Filtering through the entire planet. When we found it, we were lost. It sent out beacons, psychic signals across the radio waves. Old Grey Mac thought it was perverse. We all laughed at his thoughts. Mac could fly the darkness like no one else. But he didn't know anything about the human mind, the world between the waves. When we landed, we saw the big bronze Skull City states. We saw the machines that they had left behind. Large spider beasts. Evolved. Transfigured. Machines with alien skin stuck to the grind bones, scuttling through those ruins and making the corpses dance. First time we saw that sight, we wanted to leave. Big alien bones with zombie skin still stuck on them, prancing around in nightmare waltzes. We ran like hell away from them. They didn't follow. They stayed behind, dancing and staring with ghost eyes. When we got back to the ship, it was dead, buried in the ground with a grave on top. All that was left was ash and skeleton. A breathing thing that sustained us, gone and dead now, like Manhome itself. Carrot wept and Sunday Jay said a prayer in Pascal. It was the way Sunday Jay talked to the onboard systems, through Pascal. Sure, it was an old language, but we are an old people, wandering the restless void of space and searching for ourselves in the reflection of the cosmos. The next day we found that dog that did our ship in, giant machine thing that kept piecing itself together out of the ruins of the world around us. He was a sea of corpses and machinery. He looked at us with alien eyes, and Good Day just smiled at him and offered him a smoke. Carrot cursed it, claimed it killed the ship and kept us trapped here. We couldn't look at that alien thing covered in ship blood and the strings of organic machinery. It kept trying to talk to us, to talk to us over the radio sounds of the dead. It was so lonely. But we couldn't, not now, even though it promised us so much faster than light travel, becoming transhuman, existing beyond the realm of mortality. We couldn't let it know how we felt, how it hurt us and stranded us in the depths of space. The captain even went out and got the Zox box and shocked it around. This machine seemed to love it. It squealed with delight and then asked us if we had anything yet for dinner. Good Day stepped forward and told it we were all starving. The creature had a few nanokin whip us up some good stuff. It tasted all right, for alien metal food. 
and we thought, this giant post-flesh space cat couldn't be all that bad. Sure, he killed our ship, but that space trawler was dying anyway. Maybe it was a mercy killing. Later that night, we slept under the frozen purple light of fourteen distant suns. They were moon-sized in the distance, spread across the sky and shouting out the light of the stars. The pull of this world was dizzying and complex. It weaved through the orbits of so many planets and suns. It was like a drunk fractal nightmare of astronomical physics. When we dreamed, we dreamed in ghost voices. We dreamed of ghost algebra in a ghost planet. This world that spoke in our sleep and screamed in our waking hours through the radio towers broadcasting around us. The bones are restless, dancing. When the last hour of sleep washed away, we were greeted with the beating of techno drums and the dancing of the alien corpses. And this time, they sang. 2. We Discuss Ghost Dreams Spillgal was the first to do it. She just sat up like a white cat with black eyes, stretched out her tail and started talking. Her voice meandered at first, wandering over our heads, but then we realized what she was talking about, and we leaned in and listened. Even that big AI, that giant ship-killer corpse monster, it bent the massive head down, dripping with columns and garbage and rotting alien flesh, and listened. We had to filter out the screams of the dead in order to hear her properly. Her voice was like static, noise in the broadcast of Shadrim. I dreamt of endless space and vacuum tubes. I dreamt of a doll without eyes and a lady without teeth. I dreamt that I licked the feet of secrets, and they gave me bones to pay for a ship. I think I dreamed memories, but I can't be sure. So many voices lost in my head. Even as I am awake now, I am almost certain I am still dreaming. We talked about her dream for a bit, discussing its contents but coming to no conclusion. Whisperkid went next, talking about smoke and a guy named Kagarats. Each of us went in turn, and each dream was discussed but without any answers. Finally, at the end, the captain sat up and proclaimed that he would build us a new spaceship, one to take us home. The dead aliens scuttled away, screaming. Our dreams were a gift. They felt insulted that the captain would not stay and experience more of them. The giant machine that was our host ticked his head to the side and sighed, getting the nanokin to make us a meal of tin and scraskin. It tasted worse than it looked, but... We ate it. After that, we were less welcome in the planet of the dead. Our host kept ignoring us, and the broadcast screams of the lost world got so loud we became just static and noise in the background. It was hard to think like that, but we had to. It was a learning process, a way of filtering ourselves out from the void that tried to swallow us. 3. Skullchick Finds Material we scavenged the world for parts and pieces, but of course we couldn't go too far. There were a lot of alien machines, but we couldn't make sense out of any of it. And our host wasn't talking to us anymore. He kept towering over us, watching and recording us with thousands of nanocams. We could see them scuttle about his massive body like living dust. And the corpses, they were mad. 
They hung out on the edge of our vision, running through the ruined city and howling in a dead tongue, their voices projected just barely above that loud broadcast of ghost voices and ghost memories. And we starved. Hunger laced through our veins, spilling over into our thoughts. All we dwelled on was the memory of food, of great things like pancakes and waffles and syrup and strawberries and tomatoes. No vegetation was on this planet, nor any living meat we could kill and fry up. In the hour of our greatest hunger, Skull Girl found some parts. At first we weren't sure what she had. It looked like some skeleton from an alien body with a glowing orange heart, but metallic and carved with cold foreign pictographs. The captain knew what it was, knew what to do with it. He kissed her in joy and we all screamed. The voices got louder and that AI started to crumble into smaller pieces around us. We fitted each part in and assembled it right and proper. The captain got old Grey Mac to study the controls and then to figure out a way for us to interface with it. Old Grey Mac was great at that sort of thing. He was a xeno-archaeologist, a regular alien retrofitter. He could sew these things into the right pieces of his mind, find out exactly how their propulsion system differed from our ion drives. He was used to this sort of thing, rearranging his mind into alien shapes and geometry. Soon we had a working model up and running. Time for a test drive, and then off to freedom. 4. We gasp, we sigh, we say goodbye. It was a rough-looking space vessel, made from the alien bone parts we found and some old stuff from our ship, strapped on so that old Grey Mac could pilot it without a problem. More like a shambling, half-dead animal than a cruiser, it spun around the atmosphere and screamed as it flew in chaotic, messy lines. Our host watched, his body slinking into sludge parts, the air filtered with his nanodust. He tried to get the alien corpses to dance a goodbye dance, but he could not get them to come near us. On the moment of the test departure, those dancing corpses came out again, screaming and running towards us. Mac was flying low in the sky, looking down. The machine worked, leaving trails of blue light behind it in whirling vapours. Mac smiled and gave us the thumbs up to say that everything was okay. He flew a little lower, getting ready to find some open ground to land on. Our host collapsed into thousands of tiny bodies, trying to restrain the living dead's nanosystems. They surged and came forward, crying out and scurrying across the floors of the world with many thin and angular limbs, like undead spiders with big bulging eyes and tiny puckered lips. The planet shook. The radio systems picked up. It was all one voice now, the voice of Shadrim, that zombie planet that wanted us to stay here and be assimilated into its nightmarish ecosystem. The voice of the planet spoke in strange tongues, and the nanomachines obeyed. We tried to get Mac to land, to drop down something we could cling onto and escape. He only hovered low, a look of shock and horror on his face. The dust of the world poured into us. Living things, tiny AI, pieces of that host that kept us here for so long. 
Mac just circled about and watched as we were dissembled, our parts and pieces connected to the ruins now. They strung up our bodies like art, our intestines and bones collected with bacterial computers and small nanomachines that somehow preserved us and made us do what the world told us to. In our mind, we could hear it all the time, the thought running through our veins like the whispers of space, commanding us, telling us what to do. Our we had gotten bigger, engulfed us. We had one mind now, the mind of the world, the mind of the ghost planet. It sung in our skin, set our nerves on fire. And now we danced. We danced and our voices broadcast from those old radio waves. This was the radio song, the voice of planet Shadrim. This was us and who we were. Mac sped off, and we would have too. But now we were dancing, our corpse skin cold. Soon we would transcend, transcend and be like our host, post-flesh. Quite the horrific tale about the blend of technology and biology, wouldn't you say? Oh, and as a public service announcement, just a reminder, remember to charge your smartphones. You wouldn't want to be without the ability to text, listen to music, browse the web, or find your way around the city. Would you? <laughs> Tonight's story was read to us by Matt Cowens. He is a Kapiti New Zealand-based high school teacher and writer, co-author of the SJV award-winning Mansfield with Monsters, a collection of Catherine Mansfield stories adapted to include supernatural, horror, and science fiction elements. It is published by Steam Press and is available on Amazon in bookstores throughout New Zealand or directly from the publisher at www.steampress.co.nz. Again, links will be in the show notes. Our second story, The Immaculate Particle, is written by Charlie Human, a writer from Cape Town. He recently finished his first novel, which features a porn-peddling teenager, a disturbed military veteran, and an ancient mantis exoskeleton with the power to rend dimensions. Yes, it's true what they say. The first novel is always autobiographical. Our story begins sometime in the future, at the carnival, with rides and food, jugglers, fire eaters. Doesn't that all sound fun? Oh, and don't forget the blood sports, prostitution, and all of the illicit drugs you can get down your throat. The mountain looks as if a toothless god pulled huge chunks of granite away, like an ice cream from a stick. I can't remember when the dissolve ate Signal Hill. The corrosive nothingness spreads. It's difficult to recall the way things used to be. Buildings crumble and people become ash. The high tide is moving and there's no way to tell where it will go next. A group of working girls saunter past my booth on the grunge-slick avenue of Lover's Lane. One, young and dirty, calls something out to me. What? I shout back, straining to hear above the arrhythmic whirring of the generators that keep the carnival alive. I said, how about it? She breaks away and lifts her patchwork skirt to show me her dimpled ass. Only half a barb, love, she croons with smile.
Maybe later, I shout, with no intention of ever following up on it. I don't deserve the comforts of the flesh, however much I crave them. Lover's Lane is the sex district of the carnival, its steady trade proof that the oldest profession will go strong right until the end. The glue that binds us is our currency. Downers, painkillers, barbiturates, all affectionately called barbs by the locals. Numbness of the central nervous system is the new wealth, and the carnival is like the national reserve. Food is the second tier. Urban farmed hydroponic produce provides the bulk of our sustenance, grown and then traded at what used to be Cape Town Station between the rotting hulks of the trains. I sometimes sit in the ghostly carriages and pretend to ride into the deep chasms that surround the CBD. Next is entertainment. There are the jugglers, the fire-eaters and contortionists, and huge walls of televisions playing vintage porn and reruns of bad sitcoms. Demon, a churchy hisses as he passes my booth. Fuck your mother, I shout at the back of his shaven head. I start to shout more, but then think better of it. The Church of Adam is powerful, even here in the carnival, and the last thing I need is churchy thugs destroying my booth. The world might be dying, but I still need to make a living. How much? I didn't see her approach. Grey hair, clear blue eyes, might have been pretty once, except for the worry line etched deep into her forehead and the scars on her forearms. A cutter. That's what we call them. Cutters, because most of them bear the marks of the self-mutilation that is their only relief from the lie. Those who lock themselves up in their houses and try to pretend the dissolve isn't real. You might get your throat cut in the carnival, but at least we're honest. A reading, she says. How much? What do you have? She reaches into her little leather clutch purse and takes out two small pills, one purple and pink, and one white. These will get you 15 minutes, I say. She nods. The last tier of the carnival's economy is where I come in, a peddler of the scarcest resource of them all. Hope. I'm getting a name starting with J, I start. Does that mean anything to you? She shakes her head. Are you sure? First name, surname, nickname. Her eyes dart upwards as she scans her memory. James was my first boyfriend, she says at last. I close my eyes. Yes, it's James. He's passed, she says softly. I nod. I haven't seen him in years. He says he misses you and that he's sorry. That's always a winner. People respond well to apologies for things real or imagined. Sorry for what he did, I press. There's a quivering around her lips. Oh, James, she says with a sigh. It's okay. It's okay. I go through the usual routine. She sniffs a couple of times, cries for about a minute, and then nods to herself. Maybe that'll stop her slicing her arms open every night. Or not. Either way, I have two more barbs and I'm on my way to meeting the amount that I need to give to Shuffler. When she's gone... I drop the barbs into my stash, the leather pouch of pills I carry everywhere. It's like a rainbow in there, enough orange, blue, red and purple to buy me pretty much anything left that's worth having. Still, there are less than there should be. I couldn't sleep last night, 
so I had to dip into my savings. Sorry, Em, I whisper. I am so fucking weak. A couple more days and I'll have enough, I promise. Maybe Shuffler is lying. Maybe she's dead. Maybe the dissolve ate her and the bastards who took her. Shut up, I tell myself. Just shut the hell up. I push my way through Adderley Row, the central artery that feeds people from the residential tenement zone into the day-to-day business of the carnival. I change my course to make a wide arc around a pack of feral dogs scrounging in the dirt. Goddamn canines. They're the only things that can sense when the dissolve is going to hit. A dog starts cowering and whimpering for no reason, and you have a couple of minutes to get as far from that spot as possible before matter starts disintegrating. You'll have no idea how big the sinkhole is going to be, so you've just got to run. So dogs are sacred, no matter what god you pray to. They're also a menace. At first I thought it was canines that had got Emily. Dog packs have been known to kill children. Nobody stops them. People that try are dragged onto the lynching grounds and strung up with the albinos, identical twins, or whoever the cults decide are responsible for the dissolve that week. But it wasn't dogs that took M. It was traffickers. They snatch kids off the street and sell them to cutters who want to play happy families, or pedos who use the dissolve as a justification and a shield for their darkness. The dissolve had begun before M disappeared, but it worsened immeasurably after she was gone. Maybe it's punishment for my neglect. I just hope that she's with an infertile cutter. Shuffler says he knows where she is, and all I need is enough barbs to pay him to tell me. I'm up in Strand Row now, where the stench is unbearable and the flies are worse. I take a deep breath and only let it go when I reach the outskirts of the tenement zone. I'm not going home. Not yet. Maybe being around people will help me to sleep better tonight. The last club left is housed in a whole apartment block, one of those old Art Deco numbers. If it wasn't for the peeling paint and the cult graffiti, it might even still look classy. The club's real name is The Majestic, but Drayden once climbed onto the bar and made a drunken boast that his club would be the last club left when the dissolve finally came for it. The name stuck. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
after that. Into the elevator. I mash the button for the sixth floor with my thumb, and it begins to stutter slowly upwards. The lower floors are the fight halls, Musangwe boxing, stick fighting, cockfighting, and anything else that puts on a bloody show. A Sangoma limps in on the third floor with a chicken under her arm. In essence, she's a hope peddler like me. The bird is going to be killed and its blood smeared onto a fighter as protection. I nod to her, but she ignores me. The doors open at the sixth. The bar is packed, so I make my way round to one of the booths at the back and try to flag down one of the half-wit waiters that Dre employs. What? The young, shaven-haired waiter asks. Just my luck. A churchy. A double scale, I say. A big double. I watch the crowd ebb and flow. A couple of stick fighters enter to cheering from the punters at the bar. They look like shufflers, guys. Most of his stick fighters carry their sticks crossed over their backs rather than at their sides. I hunch back into the booth. Best not to invite attention from shuffler until I have the barbs to pay him. The waiter returns with my mug of scal and then disappears. I lift the mug, breathe in the earthy smell. Scal. Scaletium tortosum, bushman's ecstasy. Dre cultivates it on the roof. It grows easily and doesn't give you a murderous hangover, unlike some of the other home brews. I take a sip and wince at the insipid taste. I see the churchy waiter in the crowd, two booths down. Hey! He turns to look at me. This is a single. He walks slowly over to my booth. This is a single. I ask for a double. You ask for a single, trust me. Listen, I ask for a double, so go get me my double. Fuck off, he says, and starts to move away. Listen, churchy scum, go get me my double, I shout. I know it's a mistake, as soon as it's out of my mouth. Silence spreads around me like ripples in a pond. I don't even have to look around to know that there are churchy militia here. Is there a problem here, brother? A voice says. I turn to find two thugs behind me, their hair shaved except for the church of Adam Topknot. Churchy militiamen don't pass up the opportunity for violence when they have it, and I've just given them one. The waiter smiles. A fallen one, brother. When you insult one of the church, you insult us all, says the blonde militiaman. He has a nasty scar on his neck. It looks like he survived a lynching. Maybe he converted from another cult to the church to save himself. No insult intended, I say. I just wanted my drink. The Immaculate Particle forgives all men. We can help you repent, the other one says. The Particle is the central theme of church theology, above even Jesus and the universal hierarchy. Well, the Immaculate Particle may forgive, but the militia definitely doesn't. No thanks, I say. We weren't asking, brother, the blonde militiaman says, grabbing my shirt. Attention all churchy nutjobs, please go fuck yourselves. A voice with a thick hosa accent shouts from the bar. Shufflers guys, the two I saw earlier, push through the crowd and saunter over to us. They're shorter than the militiamen, but they're thick set and riddled with scars. Get your filthy hands off him, the hose stick fighter says, nonchalantly reaching over his shoulder and pulling one of his sticks from its scabbard. He belongs to Shuffler. The blonde churchy militiaman releases his grip on my shirt. You do not dictate who the church can educate, he growls. The stick fighters move apart, 
bouncing on their heels in anticipation. I estimate the distance to the door and wonder if anyone in the crowd will stop me if I sprint for it when the fight starts. But it doesn't. Drayden pushes his short, pudgy body through the crowd. Friends, friends, this is neither the time nor the place. The lower floors are a temple to the fighting arts. Perhaps you should take your conversation there. The blonde militiaman hawks and spits onto the floor. The church fights for truth, not for sport. The stick fighters laugh, and the militiaman steps forward, hands curled into fists. Please remember that you are all enjoying my hospitality here, Drayden says, raising his hand. I count both the church and Shuffler as friends. Should word get back to either that you're fighting frivolously, I'm certain the consequences would be swift. There's silence for a long moment. Then the blonde militiaman turns and stalks to the elevator, his companion close behind. The stick fighters laugh again and disappear back to the bar. Drayden slides his short body in next to me. He's not a dwarf, but he's pretty close. He's shaved the ginger stubble on his chin to a point. He rubs it and then adjusts his spectacles before finally looking up at me. You're going to get yourself killed, you know. You may not have noticed, but the whole fucking world is dying. He chuckles. First I've heard of it. He pauses again. Someone's been asking after you. More of Shuffler's guys? Come, Andre, tell them I need a little more time. He shakes his head. Someone else. He says he's a magister. I snort. I know, I know, but there's something about him. An aura, perhaps? I roll my eyes. Maybe you were just feeling the vibration of chakras. I waggle my fingers in the air like I'm casting a spell. I specialize in bullshit, Dre. Everybody else should just leave it be. I just thought you should know. Thanks for the drink, I say, getting up. Put it on my tab. I hope you plan on paying up before you disintegrate. Sure thing. Down the elevator and into the night. It started raining, which is a blessing. It'll fill up the water tanks and wash the shit from the streets. When I'm halfway down Buton Row, I hear the wet thudding of boots behind me and realise I've made a huge mistake. The two churchy militiamen are about 20 metres behind. I break into a flat sprint, my feet slipping on the slick tar. I can hear the militiamen pick up speed. My breath is rasping in my lungs as I barrel down the row. I skid into an alleyway and trip over an overturned shopping cart and tumble into the knee-deep garbage. I can hear the militiamen enter the alley as I scramble to my feet. They're singing a hymn. Please, I whisper as I start running again. Don't let them get me. Not yet. Let me find Em first. I throw myself right at the end of the alley and smash into a crush of people streaming toward me. One glance at their faces and I know instantly what they're running from. A sinkhole is about to hit the eastern wing of the tenement zone. I don't even think about it. I run through them. No! An old man screams at me and tries to grab my coat. I dodge him and keep sprinting into the crowd. The sinkholes are usually pretty small, only a block or two in diameter. If I can estimate where this one is, I might have a chance. I run toward the tenements and then scramble to a stop as the building in front of me begins to disintegrate. I've never seen a sinkhole this close before. The structure seems to hover for a second, stutter between there and not there, before it slowly begins to dissolve. Like invisible hands are unknitting reality, unravelling solidity. Unbound matter hangs in the air for a heartbeat and then caves into nothingness, 
It's several minutes before I realise it has stopped. A vast gaping emptiness stands where a thousand homes used to be. I look down. The hole disappears into darkness. Nobody really knows how deep they go. The superstitious say that some have climbed down into the holes and have seen things there. Demons, ghouls, things that feed on nothingness. I've never met anybody who's done this. When a sinkhole takes a neighbourhood, everybody reorients themselves like ants around an obstacle. It's as if the people and places that disappeared never existed. Maybe that's the way they stay sane. I stagger away, down another alley where a homeless guy looks up with bright eyes from his bed of cardboard and dirty cloth. Is it finished? He croaks. I nod and he puts his head back down onto his makeshift pillow. I turn a corner and find myself face to face with the militiamen. They didn't run. There's a moment of dumb silence, as if we've all been caught out by some elaborate prank. Then I'm thrown from my feet and slammed into the concrete. The blows come hard and brutal. I curl up, try to cover my face. Please, I cry. The immaculate particle, the first particle, the woven pattern, skin, hair, tissue, bone, vein, muscle, net of nerve. Most people have memorised at least the first psalm in case they got cornered by church thugs. I've never had to use it until now. More! The blonde militiaman has a vicious grin on his face. Say all ten! The immaculate particle! I start again, and his fist smashes into me. Amoeba-like spots swim in front of my eyes. The immaculate particle! The first particle! I choke out. The woven pattern! A boot crunches into my kneecap. I feel the act, but not the pain. My body has expanded like the parts no longer connect. I look up at the blonde militiaman and am only vaguely surprised when some invisible force rips his head from his body. I watch in mild fascination as his corpse slumps to the pavement. The other militiaman is shouting. In my peripheral vision, I see him stumble backwards with his hands to his face. The force takes him too, something shooting through him like a shotgun blast, an arc of blood spraying against the alley's graffitied bricks. Help! I beseech the pavement, my lips scratching against the tar. Hands pull me upright next to the bloody body of the militiaman. Help! I whisper again. Look at me, a low voice says. I raise my eyes and see a face, nut brown and wrinkled. Maybe of Khoisan descent. There are grey curls protruding from under a hat. I am Magister X, he says. Something opaque, like grey mist, coalesces by his shoulder. I can make out the shape of a creature, something with wings and scales. It roils and curls in the air like smoke in a bottle. The man acknowledges my gaze. A shade, he says, liberated from the earth by the dissolve. I've bound it to do my bidding. It doesn't like it, I giggle, giddy from pain. He chuckles. That's an understatement. As I grow older, I won't be able to control it. It will tear me apart. But that's later. For now, we're safe. And you need healing. His eyebrows twitch upwards and the shade curls through the air to move before me. It swirls like dust in the wind and emanates a powerful feeling of emptiness. No... I whisper, cringing. The shade moves onto my face and I scrabble convulsively away. I can't avoid it, 
I can feel it sucking eagerly, feel it deep in my body, through my sinews and bone marrow and into my very cells, my atoms, pulling, dragging, wrenching. It leaves an empty coldness in me. After an eternity, the thing detaches itself and coalesces again at the man's shoulder. That which exists can unexist, the magister intones. Even injury. He takes my hand and pulls me to my feet. I'm exhausted and I feel like throwing up, but I'm whole and uninjured. You need to see Shuffler, the magister says. Shuffler's yard is in an old police barracks on Science Row. We wait at the entrance as low-level heavies check that we're unarmed. The guards look warily at the shade and mutter to each other. I don't blame them. I want nothing more than to turn tail and flee, but the Magister has other plans, and I don't think I can outrun that thing. We're buzzed into the antechamber overlooking the illuminated practice yard. Shirtless stick fighters clash and curse in the rain, their sticks clacking against each other creating a staccato rhythm that rolls across the yard. Come, one of the heavies grunts, and leads us through a long passage to Shuffler's rooms. The rooms themselves are opulent, but the stench of the dog pack that Shuffler keeps is heavy. I have to fight to stop myself from gagging. The dogs sprawl around the room, watching us through heavy lidded eyes. Fifteen at least. They're Shuffler's warning system. And if anybody needs an early warning system, it's Shuffler. He's lying on a divan, his immense bulk spilling over the velvet sides. His orange caftan and beads make him look like one of those laughing Buddhas. But he's not smiling. That thing, he says in his sibilant lisps, gives me allergies. His pig eyes narrow at the shade and he rubs his nose. I doubt it, the magister says easily. In most ways it's not even here. Once this is done... I never want to see it again. That won't be a problem. When what is done? I pipe up. Ah, my little errand boy, Shuffler turns his baleful gaze to me. I trust you have my barbs. Almost. Just a couple more days. You won't need them, the Magister says. Shuffler and I have come to an arrangement. Provided you can deliver. Shuffler says, with an irritated wave of his hand. I can, the Magister says, and looks at me. Karen Hughes is looking for a psychic. He puts his hand on my shoulder. The teenage daughter of the prime of the Church of Adam is looking for a psychic. Isn't that against church law? Unquestionably, Shuffler smiles. But my reports indicate that young Karen has begun to rebel against life in the church compound. All you need to do is get in and open the door for us. You want me to help you start a gang war? I'll be hunted down and killed. Shuffler smiles. Probably. There is something that may make this easier for you, the Magister inserts himself calmly. The church has Emily. It's as if the shade is sucking at my soul again. The world contracts to a single point. Traffickers sold her to the church, the Magister explains. They needed subjects for tests. Is she okay? I say softly. Is M okay? You're going to have to help us to find out, the Magister says. 
The sun rises over the church compound, a long grey building on the rising slopes of Kloof Row, jewels of moisture from the rain last night glinting on its roof. The church's sacred symbol, a huge neon cross and crescent, stares down disdainfully over the carnival. The magister is at my side, and a small army of armed stick fighters are in a covered alley behind us, hidden in the morning shadows. My mission has always been a simple one, the magister tells me, to find what creates the dissolve and to eradicate it. The church has been picking at the threads of reality with its experiments. It has brought into the world the thing that existed before all other things, the immaculate particle. It is this which is tearing our world apart. We must destroy it. I just want M, I say. Get us in and you can have her. The church compound is as beautiful inside as it is ugly outside. A stained glass dome covers the central pulpit and shows Jesus, the angels, and a tiny figure of pure white. The particle. Karen is leading me through the chamber. She's tall and shaven and awkward, and she's wearing lipstick. Another church taboo. Can you really speak to the dead? She asks breathlessly over her shoulder as she leads me through the sermon room. Yes, I say without hesitation. I can see her excited grin. She leads me toward the residential rooms at the back of the compound. The compound layout is all exactly as Shuffler described. Coming up on my left should be the main generator room. Sure enough, as we walk I can hear the thrum of generator getting louder. Sorry, I say. Karen turns to me in confusion, and I grab her around the neck, using my other hand to stifle her scream. She kicks against me and I yank her backwards more viciously than I intended. She struggles violently and tries to bite my hand. I pull her into the generator room, shove her against the wall and hit her hard on the back of the head. There's a flash of pain in my fist and she slumps to the ground. I wipe my lipstick-smeared hand on my shirt as I look around for the circuit that controls the gate. Shuffler said that there would be a manual override lever. I find it and flick it. Next I find the circuit that controls the neon cross and crescent outside. I flick it off and then on again to signal Shuffler's men. It's several minutes before I hear the shouts. I peer into the hall and see the battle convulsing through the sermon room. Militia men are fighting desperately, but Shuffler's stick fighters have outmatched them. They push forward inexorably, hacking down everyone before them. I see a serving girl killed from behind by a panga. I see the magister walking calmly through the pitched battle. A militiaman screams as an invisible force picks him up and grinds him against a wall, his boots six feet above the ground. The magister pulls the shade back with a silent command and walks towards me. Emily, I say. He nods. Follow me. We walk through the corridors, ignoring the churches cowering before us. The back rooms are larger, more opulent. We reach the Prime's private chambers, and the Magister pushes open the gilded doors. The Prime stands in the middle of the room. He is shorter than I imagined, with thinning grey hair and close-set blue eyes. He regards us without fear. The Immaculate Particle, the first particle, he chants, his hands held in front of his chest in supplication. The woven pattern, skin, hair, tissue, bone, vein, muscle, net of... The magister flicks his hand and the shade curls away from his shoulder. 
It slices through the air like a scythe and rips into the prime, almost cutting him in half. He drops to his knees and holds his hands over the gaping wound in his abdomen. Net of nerve, he gurgles. I ignore him. M, I call. M. The magister beckons me into an alcove at the back of the room. In the four years that she's been gone, she hasn't aged. Still a child of three, head shaven, her short naked body white like porcelain against the pool of nothingness in which she is suspended. She moves her sightless white eyes to me. M, I rasp. What have they done to you? The magister grips my shoulder. They created the god particle through flesh. They transformed her. We need to save her, I say. Please. He shakes his head sadly. We're not here to save her. I can almost feel the shade curling in the air and, without thinking, I smash my forearm into the magister's throat. He grabs me as he falls, dragging me with him. The shade spins in the air toward Emily. I pull myself up to intercept it as it sweeps over me. I feel it clawing the skin from my face as it passes. It hurtles toward M, smashing into the void around her and splitting into a thousand black tendrils. No! The magister shrieks. I look down and see horror on his face. The tendrils curl and solidify into a single huge entity, a chimera of emptiness spitting and shrieking from a thousand mouths. The giant shade reorients and dives toward the magister. I roll away as it attacks, a fighting dog turning on its master. A wail splits the air and I look across to see M, black tears rolling down her cheeks. She inhales and then the walls around us begin to disintegrate into nothingness. The magister, the shade ripping at his chest, reaches out and grabs my leg with one torn and bloodied hand. Please, he whispers. I crawl toward her tiny form. I feel non-existence blossom around me, through me. I'm a punctured balloon of flesh. My gums dissolve into a fleshy paste and I gag as my throat fills with loose, bloody teeth. The skin of my face liquefies, bubbles and runs. All through my body, tendons snap like fireworks going off. I can still see her. Barely able to move, I reach what's left of my hand into my bag. I pull out a handful of rainbow barbs and shove them into my mouth. I float there in the nothingness, feeling the numbness spread. I can still see her, her eyes shining with emptiness, so small, so perfect. The immaculate particle, my daughter, she smiles and inhales. Mm-mm. The future for our species does sound like things will be quite exciting for us, won't it? Then again, I suppose a story about a bright, hopeful future wouldn't be so interesting. But wherever, whenever we will be, if we can't find problem and trouble, we'll just bring our own favorite flavor of it. And our second story was read to us by Dan Raybarts. He is a speculative fiction writer, sometimes narrator of podcasts, occasional sailor of Sailing Things and father of two wee miracles and a little house on a hill under the southern sun. His short fiction has been published or is forthcoming at several venues, including 
Andromeda Spaceways, In-Flight Magazine, the Urban Horror Anthology Bloodstones, and the Wiley Writers Podcast. His narrations can be heard on the Starship Sofa, right here on Tales of Terrify, and Wiley Writers, and Crime City Central. He has twice been a finalist for New Zealand's Sir Julius Vogel Award, both for fiction and nonfiction. Find him lurking on the web at dan.raybarts.com or in the dusty corners of the house tapping frantically at a keyboard. And that will conclude our stories for the evening. Thank you for joining us in the nook for Tales to Terrify. And as always, pleasant dreams. Mm-hmm. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Thank <laughs> you.